Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. During these times of COVID, we're Zooming and Skyping and doing whatever it is we can do to have meaningful conversations. And today's show, if it sounds like we're in the kitchen, it's because we are. It's a bit of a Zoom tea talk from the kitchen of Laura Munson, and it goes something like this. Hello, Laura. It is so good to see you. Oh, good to see you too. Thanks for having me on your show. It's pretty full circle from the first time I came on 10 years ago with my first book. And Why don't you remind it. people when they were introduced to you the first time on our show, Laura? Well, I'll tell you what. So yeah, that was for this is not the story you think it is. This became a New York Times an international bestselling book. So I was sent off to do a whole bunch of promotion. I walked into your studio and there's this beautiful woman who ends up busting out the best questions that I've been asked <laughs> anywhere. And I did tons of media and I just thought this woman and I were kindreds. It was such a phenomenal book and I think um, your truth telling of that is the reason I was immediately drawn to you Laura your willingness to actually explore your own interior and that's what Beyond Well is about. This interview today is focused on your phenomenal book Willis Grove. This is I want to just give you because I know Laura is probably so tired of, of describing it but three women from coast to coast open their mailboxes to this intriguing invitation that essentially says to them, what's next in your life? And I love this question right now, Laura, because I am pretty sure almost every woman I know is asking that essential question. And I think it's uh, COVID. I think it's where people are in terms of um, having more time to actually explore their interior and what they really want. And there's a myriad of reasons we're doing it. But why did you decide that particular question? Well, the question is, so now what? And when I wrote the book, I never dreamed that it would be so timely. You know, I mean, I was basing it on everything that I've learned from leading writing retreats for the last eight years and a thousand people and what happens when they all come together. But I just can't believe how timely it is right now. The actual invitation, it might, it might be worth reading. Let's um, do it. Read the invitation if you would. You are invited to the rest of your life. You know you can't go on like this, not for one more day. You need an interlude. Imagine this, you're in a farmhouse in Montana, wrapped in a soft blanket, sitting by a warm wood stove. There's a cup of tea in your hand, just the way you like it. There are women surrounding you who need this just as badly as you do. We all have the same question. The question is, so now what? Come to Montana and find out, love Willa. You don't have to do this alone. And this invitation is prompted by her best friend, um, who, you know, because Will has been in isolation after the um, death, uh, very sudden and very early, untimely death of her husband. And they've been living in this very Emersonian, self-reliant life in this small town in central Montana, population 35. And she realizes she's no, not so self-reliant. And she isolates out of the shame of, of that. And then she finally reaches out to a friend. And then that friend is the one who says, why don't you write this invitation? You invite me, then I'll invite another friend who's also at a major so now what crossroads moment. And then that friend will invite a third. And then so four women convene and they don't all know each other, but the middle two at least have two friends. The first and fourth have one. And this is, this is something that, that I want um, people to do. I want them to read this book as a novel, and then I want them to consider getting people together in this sort of bridge community. 
Isn't that so interesting that I've read your book probably twice now, and I actually flipped the question to the question that I'm asking myself, so what's next? And yours <laughs> says, <laughs> so we're all taking this and putting all of this individual sort of imprint on what it is that Willis Grove is about. But I first want to ask you, um, when you, you started this book tour just as, as COVID was breaking, which was incredible to me that an author as established as yourself is now not able to go sit with audiences and speak to people and be as intimate as you possibly could. And yet women still found this book in groups and conversations. How did that happen? Well, you got to believe it's word of mouth, right? And that was crushing for me. I'm known for memoir, but fiction is my true love. That's what I've been working on since 1988. I've written like 22 novels. They're not all good, but I've got a handful of them. I wanted Willis Grove to come after This Is Not the Story You Think It Is, just because it it so captures what where my heart has been for the last eight years, working with these groups of women who are leaving home in order to um, connect with other kindred so that they can more authentically and powerfully connect with their daily communities. And, um, and so I was so excited to be its messenger, Sheila, you know, and I was out there. I, so many of us, obviously, you know, my story's not not uh, any different than most, but but specifically, I do think we have to tell our stories. We can't just be like, oh, somebody else has it worse than us. It's like we have to talk about how this time in our history has affected us. And I think that's in part, even though I didn't get to be this book's messenger for more than about 14 days, um, I was planning on being on the road for two months, all March, all um, March, April, thank you. March and April, it's like one long day. And then I was planning on going out for the month of July. And so I never thought it would land on the USA Today bestseller list because I thought, well, you know, I, I wanted to be the messenger and I was doing workshops. So now at workshops all across the country, still it's landing in people's hearts. I think it's because, well, I think our world stopped, took a major pause. A lot of people are reading, returning to, to their values. You know, how many people do you know learned how to make bread during this time? You know, I did. I finally learned how to make bread. Yeah. But along with all the heartache, we crave community more than ever. And these women are having the conversations that we all need to be having. And in many cases weren't before. And now, whether we like it or not, I think we know that we have to especially the um, age at which these uh, your protagonist and her friends are, I think is a crucial age for women because uh, in a modern American society, many people would look at women over 50 and say, you're done, your childbearing years are over, you're used to us as a pop star or as a potential scientist have, have gone and now we don't really have a use for you. And yet these women, your characters, end up re-examining their worth, their self-value, and what they can be to one another, which I think is just such a phenomenal message. Oh, yeah. And they all have very relatable conflicts. You know, I wrote the book first in a really prescriptive way, just because I wanted people to read the book and say, oh, I'm going to throw Sheila's Grove, and she'll invite Laura, and Laura will invite somebody else, and that person will invite someone else, and they'll come together. And everybody was like showing up with their yoga mats and all ready to go and have big conversations. And, and then I realized that was just not how things go. And I gave it over to the characters to tell their story, and then they told it. And that, that's 19 drafts ago. And, um, and so to me, to me these, these conflicts are really relatable. And I didn't always 
want them to have these conflicts. They wanted to have them. It sounds like woo woo, but anybody writing fiction will tell you that the characters write the book. And so let's see, Willa's central conflict is uh, self-reliance versus interdependence. Mm-hmm. Um, Bliss's um, conflict is religion versus faith. And then um, Harriet's is something that's really near and dear to my heart. And even though I say none of these characters is me and none is anyone I know, and they are all of us. Of course. You, you can bet that all writers, and you know, you're a writer too, we mine our lives and Harriet's is something that I had big time for a long time, and that is addiction to ambition, ambition, addiction. And then uh, Jane's is, it's, it's just the central question, does money really bring you happiness? You know, it brings you comfort and choices, but can it really bring you happiness? And so these, these women are from very different demographics, and yet they are safe in this circle. And, and that's what I'm hoping for people when they read the book, to be able to relate with the characters, love them, savor them, miss them when it's over, and then have it be a call to action to reach out to your own loved ones, especially if you're hiding, pretending, saying you're fine in the grocery store when you're heart is shattering inside. Come you together. know, um, Laura, it's one of the reasons that I wanted you to have on your show because this show is all about exploring our interior lives and forming community and connection in a way that's really um, so authentic that you actually feel seen, heard, and believed. And I keep thinking about the walls that Willa put up to make everyone believe she was okay. The number of people who would ask in the grocery store and she would say she was just fine. And she's actually been dealing with a very debilitating injury. I think for many women, this book will resonate on the stories we tell others so that we can feel okay about ourselves. So my question is, what did you learn from writing it about yourself? What did you plumb from your own depths about how you've guarded or perhaps told a story or seeing yourself in some of these characters and the things they were doing and, and telling others? Well, that's a great question because it's Sheila Hamilton and she only asks the very best questions. I'm going to answer it in a way that might be a little tangential, but I think it truly gets to it. And that is that when I was going across the country and doing the book tour, I was asking people for questions. And the first, and it was, I was right in the middle, you know, it was March 2nd in New York and all around New Jersey and Westchester and then Boston and Chicago. I mean, I was, I'm sure I finally just had to say enough. And we went home from Minneapolis, but it was so fascinating just on a personal level to see, it was like a social study in what is in our collective and and that's actually when I started to understand the power of the book was when I got to ask these questions. These were the questions. First one, raise your hand if you've ever been in a so now what crossroads in your life. Of course, mm-hmm. everybody in the room raised their hand, right? That's no, that's no new news. That's no surprise. That's part of the, that's the human condition, right? And then I would say, raise your hand if you or someone you know, because I didn't want people to expose themselves if they were thinking of quitting their job and they came there with their boss, right? So you or someone you know is in a so now what, so now what crossroads right now? And I'd say, Sheila, 75% of the room would raise their hands. And I would say, keep your hands raised and look around look around. I want you to see how much this is in the collective, that we are in these transition moments. This is before COVID really hit us so hard. Then this part was fascinating to me. I would say without raising your hand, just call out whether it's 
yours, so now what, or someone else's, just what you think is in the collective right now in terms of these transition, these crossroad moments in our lives. And the top three, and there were many others, but the top three were something to do with career, mm. something to do with um, interpersonal relationship with spouse or, or partner, and the third was something to do with parenthood. And, you know, then there were others like taking care of elderly parents. And of course, you know, the unexpected loss of, of a loved one, but those top three, that's what's in the collective, at least then, right? Like, like right now, if I said, raise your hand, if you're in a, so now what hundred percent of the room would have raised their hands. Yeah. And I thought that is new news because what happens is, you know, we choose those three things, right? We choose our career, and in some cases, we've spent years and years to have letters after our names and accolades, et cetera. Um, we choose our partners and we choose to be parents. And so when something goes amok in those three realms. And it's bound to. And it's bound to. <laughs> yeah. What we do, we end up hiding because we're afraid of being judged. We're afraid, we're ashamed, we're, uh, we're just afraid in general, we're embarrassed, we, don't, we feel guilty, and that to me is the new news, and that's why I think this book is resonating for so many people. It's a call to action to not hide, to not pretend, and to reach out to safe people, right? Safe people. I love the, the um, moniker safe people because um, I just returned from a conference on loneliness and one of the very interesting distinctions for me was that people can be very isolated. There are some people who are isolating in quarantine alone and they love their pets and they love their books and they don't feel loneliness at all. And then there's another group and it actually tends to be Generation Z and X who are very, very lonely. The highest rates of loneliness in terms of when researchers look at this that they've ever seen, and many of them are married. And so even within their own context of their quarantine, they feel alone. They are scrolling through Instagram and seeing lives that they can't have. And the level of depression and anxiety, Laura, is so high right now. And I just keep thinking, the message that you are attempting to get at is have real friends. Have friends that have your back, that can hear you say the hardest things and still hear you, be with you, accept you, and walk with you. Yeah, and sometimes those people don't share your daily life. And now, of course, our daily life, what does that even mean? You know, so many of us haven't even seen our neighbors in, in weeks, if not months. But my call to action is to um, actually leave the people that don't feel safe to you, whatever that means physically, like when they come out to my retreats in Montana, I mean, that's really what inspired this whole thing. You know, these people would say, we're your best group, right? You know, there's no way this could ever happen like this again. <laughs> One woman said, you're like, no, actually you're, and then you name the name. You're the bliss, right? Well, no, I didn't. Well, but, but it had definitely, you know, one woman said, this is the best family reunion I've never been on. Oh, and wow. that activated the novelist in me, like, how can I capture this in a book? So I'm not saying don't rely on your family and friends when you're in a major. So now what? Mm. Sometimes you might need to reach out to someone else outside of your daily life so that you can really have those conversations we need to be having again, so that you can then bridge back to your daily life. So there's something about these temporary community communities, and I, I call them bridge communities. There's something about them. I've just seen the magic happen over and over and over again. People who might not meet 
in their normal lives and who come together and they become closer um, in just five days than many people are with their family and friends in a whole lifetime. I That's love that. I think that the gay community has always known that you actually have to have a forever family. You have your family of origin and you, and you, you know, they might live in Texas and they might, you know, be a Trump supporter and you're on, uh, uh, on the blue coast and having a really difficult time understanding them. And Thanksgivings and Christmas are all about your bridge family. They're all about people who accept you, support you and love you. And more and more, I actually think women need these groups. They actually, they absolutely have to have other women around them who see them both, you know, economically, politically, socially, like where you, where you're at in your age, there has to be a lot of that. Totally. And then what's interesting, like I said, when I wrote the first draft, it was very prescriptive. And then I, I took a shower and then <laughs> started it over again, like once upon a time, letting the women tell it. And what I learned from that is that the, not everybody wants to be having those conversations, right? That's right. It's not That's right comfortable for everybody so so two of the women are you know they're like they're staring at the exit sign like foot out the door and so there's some resistance there then it become came much more real and then together this group right so like any group of four women or four people who get together will have their own way of, of being together and and one of the rules that they make is stop saying you're sorry Unless you really owe somebody an apology, that comes up because we say, oh, I'm sorry, just, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for like having a sip of tea or, you know, I'm sorry, we yeah. got it over, I'm sorry. And, and again, unless we owe somebody an apology. And the other one is that like, so tell me, where are you in your life? Oh, well, blah, 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 how about you? Right, we do that so quickly. In Willis Grove, they actually force each other and they come upon this organically to tell each other their story based on what was supposed to happen. Mm, so they good. wanted to have happen, right? And then what actually happened. And something tells me that if you're on a week-long retreat, those two things are not one and the same. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it, on your, in your week-long life, right? <laughs> I mean, the prescription of everybody's life is so completely different than how it turns out. And who would want what you wanted for yourself in your 20s anyway, really? You know, the dream is just such a bizarre, uh, commercial, shoved down women's throats version of who we're supposed to be. So I'm not really sure that we should even say it's something that we ever really even wanted you know, because I'm hoping that by the time you reach your 50s, that you're a person who wants something very, very different for yourself and for your family than you wanted when you were 20. I'm hoping that's what aging does. Yeah, me too. And I hope that you're willing to create the space uh, with people you can trust so that you can actually admit to what your dream was and how it fell short or completely, you know, got annihilated or whatever, so that you can help each other figure out what's next in your life. So much of it is about just life, the it, the proverbial it is about shedding old patterns that don't serve us so that we can move forward in our lives. And that doesn't happen easily. And that's why getting together, being in community and telling your story in a really poignant, honest way in a place with people where you can, you know, build that trust is so important. Whether it's talking heads like this yeah. Yeah. or in person. 
I want to ask you what your thoughts are. Um, I just returned from my general physician, the first like, you know, big appointment that you go to after, what are we, four months, five months into quarantine now. And um, they're now giving people, uh, every time you go for a general checkup, a depression and anxiety screening. And uh, the only reason I found this so fascinating was because, you know, I've always considered myself to have really good resilience, really good mental health. And they, they're like, do you have days where you don't want to get out of bed? And I'm like, mm, yeah, okay. Do you have days where you feel like you don't know what you're doing? And I said to the doctor, doesn't everyone like rate really high on the depression and anxiety scale right now during COVID? Because if you're not, like, are you even paying attention to how scary it is out there? She said, it is so interesting how guarded people are around these self-evaluations that they will not even admit to themselves that they're sleeping 12 hours a day. They will not even admit how difficult this is because in admitting it, it becomes really scary for them that they're teetering. So how was this for you, Laura, to come into the minds of four women, all teetering, all unwilling to actually accept who they were and where they are today? Uh, well, COVID wasn't a thing uh, when I wrote the book. However, my father was born in 1918 in the middle of the flu epidemic. And my grandmother, his mother lived with us during the time. And so she was always talking about the grip and was always saying, you're going to catch your death of cold. And I actually have the letters written from her, her mother to her when she had my father as a young baby in 1918. And it was always, you know, like I've knit this, this sweater for, for, for you and the one for the baby, but Papa doesn't want me to send them to you because, you know, for fear you'll, you'll catch the grip. So I'm sending them anyway. So and they called it the grip? They call it the grip. Yeah. And, and then, so burn the material once I, once you get it. And I, I got all these letters, I inherited them. I'm sort of the keeper of things on paper, words on paper, surprise, surprise, last summer. And I remember thinking, we are so far away from that, you know, and they were dealing with one world war two, the depression. And I thought, gosh, we're so relieved. And then here we are, here oh we are. God. So I have to believe that, you know, just growing up with my grandmother and my father, you know, we, we would go to family cemeteries and dad would say, oh, there's Uncle Tracy. He, he died in the flu epidemic, you know, and, and, or like little teeny graves. And, and so it was imprinted in my heart. I, I, I in no way was thinking about that when I wrote the book. But, you know, it's no small surprise that I'm comfortable being in, in a place of discomfort for the characters that I write, whether they're real or imagined. I've always been highly transparent because I want to have those conversations. And frankly, Sheila, when we were little babies, like you and I would have been friends, like little kids on the playground, I was always asking people the big questions and they always wanted to talk about them. And then about age, whatever, 12, right? I now. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to talk about it anymore. I kept talking about it. And so I think that's why I'm a writer. I just took all my big questions to the page. I love the, um, first of all, I love the difficult route that Willa has to, has, has to actually plumb before she finds any kind of resolution. And um, it was fascinating to me how in so many ways I was thinking, Laura has in, in some ways put a, a mirror to the difficulty of your own life. I mean, you have this gorgeous property. Um, you are managing 
a ton of of projects and people and and the townspeople and your relationship with the townspeople and i'm just so curious by the end of it did you say i have a prescription not just for willa but also for laura as i move forward in my own life <laughs> yeah well golly good question <laughs> so i'll go back to writers mind their lives and i've been thinking a lot about it right because i've been doing a lot of interviews about the book which I miss. I miss these characters so much. I'm, yeah. just looking, I'm just looking at the book right now. I miss them. The other night I just started reading it again because I, I miss Harriet and Bliss and Willa and Jane. Um, but, you know, th like the whole town and her house and everything about it is totally in my imagination. I can see it perfectly. And yet it's nothing I've ever seen in real life before. But wow. like I said before, you can bet that, yeah, you know, writers mind their lives, whether it's, it's real or imagined. So, okay, so eight years ago, what was I looking at? My kids were still living at home. Um, I was anticipating empty nest. I had just gone through a divorce. So, you know, yeah, my fear was living alone in a farmhouse in Montana, you know, and so I, I wrote my way through my fear and that's, and that's, and that's what I encourage people to do. I, I always say yeah. I think that writing is, writing should be up there with, with diet and exercise in the realm of preventative wellness. That's one thing I have to say. It's a therapeutic tool. It's not therapy, but it's therapeutic. The other thing is I say that writing is my practice, my prayer, my meditation, my way of life and sometimes my way to life, whether it's memoir or fiction. And I know that in creating these characters, I, I was facing some of my deepest fears. You also found your way out of it, which is just, I think the beauty of fiction is to explore everything that you can possibly imagine. You can put your characters through things you never, ever, ever want to go through yourself. And they all find a beautiful, beautiful ending. And some of it isn't all that, you know, it's not like you've tied everything up with a bow at all. So we're not gonna give everything away. But I absolutely want you to read this, if only to have your book club, your neighbor group, whoever it is that you have real conversations with, consider Willis Grove as a starting point for that question. I am so proud of you for doing this book. And as you said, who would have known that COVID would make it even more essential, Laura? Yeah, I don't know. There's there's a line in the book I love, and um, you might recognize it. And um, that is, Bliss says a few a few a few uh, chapters in. You know, they're not all vibing perfectly together, but she says once they all sort of are, she says, you know. We're all fluent in this language, in the language of community. And yet we so rarely speak it. Mm. It really is our mother tongue. And that's what I want people to take away from this book. We are all fluent in this language, in the language of community. And yet we so rarely speak it. It really is our mother tongue. And that wrapped up our kitchen conversation with Laura Munson from her beautiful home in Montana. Don't forget Laura's website where there's a ton of information about her Haven Writers Workshop. And I completely agree, writing is a form of therapy. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to give us a thumbs up if you like what you hear. <laughs>